You all figured it might be the other guy, but it wasn't going to be you. You saw other airplanes get hit and go down, but you were just, you, did, you didn't realize a lot of it until you got back home. And I mean, you began to think about what, what you'd just done, and it, it hit you. Lieutenant Al Goodman had the co-pilot seat in a B-24 Liberator for bombing missions over Italy in 1944. His crew's job was to keep pounding rail lines, oil refineries, and do everything possible to choke off supplies for the weakened but still stubborn Nazi war machine. Eleven of those missions were successful. On the 12th, Al Goodman came close to losing his life. He's had plenty of time to reflect on how he came so close to being the other guy. Now 97, Al is a cancer survivor with a bounce for life that puts him on a golf course sometimes three days a week. This is the Honor, Thank, Inspire story of Army Air Corps Lieutenant Alvin Goodman. Do you remember as a little boy looking skyward, seeing planes go overhead and saying, I want to do that. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I was taken to an air show at Glenview when I was about five, and I saw the airplanes and I knew I wanted to be a pilot. So that was, that was what started me. So from age five? Yes. All that time? All that time. Well, then you got a chance. World War II rolls around, and you're 17, so I presume you volunteered, but... You needed a parental permission, didn't you? Did my mother my mother signed the papers for me. What happened then? Well, I went and took the tests for uh, being an aviation cadet. Uh, took the tests and uh, passed them. And I was put into the reserve and finally called in. I did this in November of 1942, and I was called into service in February of 1943. But you had a choice because you wanted to be in the Army Air Corps. You could do that. They weren't going to stick you in another pool no, and send you somewhere else. Definitely. I, that's what I wanted. You wanted to do that. Yes. So that was pretty clear. So how did your, how did your training begin? <clears throat> well, uh, the first part of it, uh, we went into basic training in Texas. And uh, then they sent us all back to school. The pipeline was full, and they were still building airfields, and they didn't have room for us. So they sent us back to school, and I ended up at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And while there, we took a civilian program of 10 hours to weed out those that couldn't fly or that were, would get sick or anything that would prevent them from going through the rest of the training. Then we went into pre-flight, where we had nothing but marching in school, learning all sort, all the stuff we needed to know. From there, we went to primary flight school. We had 60 hours of training. Uh, again, a lot of ground school. And we, we were taught all the basics of flying, in other words, uh, and we had a little bit of instrument training. From there, we went to basic, where a bigger airplane, faster, continuation basically of just all basic things we needed to know but we started our instrument training and then from there we went to advanced school which in my case was a twin engine school and it was just 
constantly training and training to be the best pilot you could be. These were small aircraft you were dealing with, though, Yes, right? they were. They weren't the big... The, you were going to fly a B-24. <clears throat> did, did you know that at the time? Not you, at the time. Okay. Uh, they kept asking us all the time, what did you want to fly? And the answer was always P-51, P-38, P-47. Nobody at the time wanted to fly bombers. We all thought we were fighter pilots. Right, right. And then after we graduated... We got our commission from the advanced school. They assigned us where they needed us. So how did word come to you that you'd be flying a B-24? Um, I, I didn't. We went, we were sent, I was sent back to the same base I had graduated from to do PR work. Again, there was a lack of training facilities. And one day I just got my orders to go to Harlingen, Texas, which was a B-24 gunnery school, and I was trained as a co-pilot there. Okay, and then you became a co-pilot. Yes. So when did you, when did you head for Europe? That was in 44, I yes. believe? Yes. Um, I think we got assigned to a bomb group. I went over by boat, and I think I got assigned to a bomb group in October of 44. Okay. Well, when you say you went over by boat, yeah. that took some time. Yes, that was that almost, was like like a month long almost. Right. There were thirty five bomber crews on one boat that I was on, and uh, we found out later at that time it was the largest convoy that went over because a bunch of ships joined us from New York. We left from Virginia, and there were one hundred and seven ships in the convoy. What are the conversations like with all those bomb crews on board? What are you talking about? Well, not a lot. I mean, a lot of card games and so forth. And we were, you know, like steerage. <laughs> they had us packed in the hold, you know. And so uh, many of us spent as much time as we could on deck just to relax. And in my case, I, uh, I drew pictures. Uh, guys brought pictures of their wives and girlfriends, and I made pencil sketches of them. And that kind of kept me kept me occupied. Any concern about uh, submarines? One night, particularly, um, we were general quarters, and we all were signed a spot on deck, and we all ended up on deck. And there was a ship burning, and some explosions, and we had no idea what it was. It was in the middle of the night, and uh, we'd had a show planned. We were going to put on a rather raunchy show for for everybody and uh, we had the show that night and went the laughter was very stilted I mean everybody had that in mind because we had no idea what had happened later we found out an ship an ammunition ship and an oiler had run together and that was what it was Nobody knew, and we saw the little destroyer escorts running around with their searchlights on, looking for survivors and so forth. So that was our introduction to war. Then you arrive in, uh, in, in Italy, and uh, you're training together with your crew. Right. Where are you based in Italy? And a little town of Manduria, which is in the heel of the boot. Um, the waterway there is the Gulf of Taranto. 
and we were 23 miles south of Taranto and west of Bari, Italy, which was the headquarters of the Air Force at that time. So when do you do your first mission, and what is your, what's your mission going to be? Do you have any notion before you fly of your targets? No. Um, well, to give you the target, we had briefings, as you probably yeah. heard. You know, we all meet, and they show the map, and you could tell if the colonel was dressed up, he wasn't going, but if he was in his flight suit, he was going, and you knew it wasn't going to be that bad a mission. <laughs> but... Uh, it it was you just got called out now the first two missions i flew were not with my crew they put us with an experienced crew the first couple of missions just to see how things went before they put you back together as a crew were you a co-pilot on those I missions was always a co-pilot okay. yes when you're on your missions when you're mm-hmm. taking off as a bomb group mm-hmm. can, can you describe what that was like the feelings that you had you're looking at all these planes taking off and formation that you have to maintain. What, what did that look like? Well, we, we had just one little strip, so we had to line up one after another. When we never did like the fighters where they all took off in formation. We would, every 30 seconds, we had an airplane go down the runway. And it was, it was a, uh, the first, I mean, I, of course, I had been flying in the B-24s in Harlingen, Texas, so it wasn't, it wasn't new to me. I mean, I knew what I was supposed to do, and it just seemed like it, was, it took a little longer to get off the runway because we were carrying bombs and all the fuel that we carried, and um, the airplane reacted a little bit slower than what you anticipated, so you did get a little... A little edgy if it didn't start to show signs of wanting to fly as fast as you wanted it to. And the B-24, as I've read, was not necessarily an easy plane to fly? It was not. It had a very thin wing, which made it a a little flaky. It was not as stable as the B-17, which had more wingspan. So what's your typical payload on a mission? Pretty much uh, 2,700 gallons of fuel and around 8,000 pounds of bombs. So that could be... And 10 men. Okay, 10 men. Mm-hmm. You've got two in the cockpit. Well, you've got a yep. navigator, engineer. Bombardier, different. and gunners. When you're over a target and pilot, co-pilot are communicating with bombardier on when to let him go? No, in reality... You've heard about the Norden bomb site, you know, supposedly yes. put the bomb in a pickle barrel and all that. That was uh, good public relations. <laughs> um, usually, the, only about three airplanes had bomb sites, the three leaders, the f- leader and the two wings, and the rest didn't have the bomb sites. So what the bombardier did is they would, you knew you were on the bomb run, you saw the doors open on the lead airplane, you opened your doors, and then they watched, and as soon as they saw the bombs start to go, they all hit the switch, and everybody Everybody let them, it go. Everybody let them go, yeah. So what kind of resistance were you facing then? The, the war is not necessarily winding down, but I th- you described it as a war of attrition. Yes. It was, I mean, our targets were oil and choke points to prevent things. We were down there. Our bomb group... Uh, made 14 trips to the Ploesti oil fields. 
I mean, they never really knocked them out completely, and that was that was what they tried to do. Um, we didn't. We, I mean, the bomb uh, bomb sites were all picked for us, so we we just didn't know them until we got to the briefing. But you didn't. You you just you, you were so concentrated on staying in formation that you didn't really. You weren't out sightseeing, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the idea was to just keep as tight a formation as you could, and and then rally off the bomb drop and head for home. So oil fields, rail yards, choke points. Right. Those those are the things you're looking at. Yeah, everything was to try to stop the movement of of the Germans. And you're um, you're guarded by the Tuskegee Airmen. They're we were. your escorts. We were. I mean. You, on your way to the target, and the tail gunner would say, you know, aircraft coming up at 6 o'clock, and you knew they were they were catching up to you. you well, you, you had you, to leave earlier, right, because yes. they didn't have the fuel to take them the full distance. Right. And they were so much faster, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they caught up to us and guarded us. So on a typical bombing run, are you catching all kinds of fire from the ground? Um, that was that was what our biggest problem was. By the time I got there, I mean the fighters were not that uh, there weren't that many of them around. But like I say, we had all our our cover and uh, certain targets. Um, there were oil refineries around Vienna. Those guns were all aimed by radar. Uh, there were other targets where they just filled the sky with the stuff that kept shooting it up, and we had to fly through it. So you never knew. Can you describe that for me? What was that like, flying through a field of flowers? Um, you, you kind of shrunk into yourself so it wouldn't be a target. And it was, as you've seen from some of the movies, it was just big, blown little explosions all around you. And you knew that that was all metal coming out of that shell that had been shot up there. And... They knew how high we were because if they didn't have the radar, once in a while you could see a German fighter off in the distance pacing you, just staying at your altitude and, and pacing you. And they generally knew where we were going once we turned on a bomb. Well, sure, if you're hitting start. the same oil field over yeah. and over, they know you're coming right. back, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, so it's exploding all around you. Uh, we were talking before we started about faith. You're a man of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, did you call on your faith when you were in situations where you, you wondered whether or not you were going to come out of it alive? No. Um, you, you were so busy, you didn't really have a lot of time. I mean, you were, you were just making sure you stayed with the other airplanes and so forth. And f- fatalistically, I don't think anybody, you all figured it might be the other guy, but it wasn't going to be you. You saw other airplanes get hit and go down and so forth, but you were just you did you didn't realize a lot of it until you got back home. And I mean, you begin to think about what what you'd just done, and it it hit you. It's after the fact right. when you realize it. Yeah, that, that little shot of bourbon tasted pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but you witnessed you witnessed other bombers go down. Yes. And and if you saw something you try to count the number of parachutes you saw and so forth. 
because when you got got home, you got briefed, and you try to tell them everything you could remember. They're going down, though, over enemy territory. Yeah. And you don't know if they're going to get out of there alive. You don't know anything, hell. Did you ever track the whereabouts of some of the people who went were shot down? Um, actually, I, I was on a, a replacement crew, and nobody really, nobody associates with you because you're taking the place of one of their friends that might have been missing or something. I see. So you, you never really got, got friendly with anybody particularly. It wasn't until the reunions after the war that you all got to telling your stories and got to know each other. And you had a bunch of those, too. I think, oh, yes, right? we did. I was fortunate. I ran the reunions for my bomb group for nine years, and uh, it was fun. What's the communication like when you're flying through a field of flak and you've got targets, bomb bay doors are open, what do you are you and the co, are you and the pilot talking? Are you are you no. just you're just all about mission? Just all point. about keeping that airplane in formation. You haven't got any time for talk. So you were on eleven missions, and then comes the twelfth. Yeah, and that's where you encounter a problem. Right. Walk me through that, if you would. Um, I don't I don't want to speak of the dead poorly, but. We, uh, we were on a mission, we came up through the clouds, and we were right in position with our bomb group, and the guy that I flew with, for some reason, decided that was not our bomb group, and he wanted to turn home. And we turned home, went back home, and ran right across a field where they started shooting at us. And they put five shots up, and that was all it was. We were out of there, and I got hit. Well, they had the five shots, two of them below us, one even with us, and two above us. And one of them from up above came in through the top of the cockpit and hit me. Where did it hit you? Uh, he got me in the shoulder. Fairly and substantial? What, was, uh, what happened to you then? Well, like I say, it was uh, like somebody congratulated me and hit me on the shoulder. And uh, actually... I did not feel any pain, which was a shy uh, surprise to me. I mentioned down in the Unicom, I said, I've been hit. And, and uh, I did my try to do a little prayer and I passed out. So I don't remember anything that happened on the rest of the way home. was the piece of metal that went into you. Yeah, it was half of, part of an anti-aircraft shell. It's all one side's machined. It's The other sides are pretty rough where it exploded. So what, about an inch and a half worth of metal? Oh, yeah, about an inch. And uh, it's got a little heft to it. Right. So you're conscious initially, but then you, you black out at right. that point. And, so uh, how did your, how'd you get out of this mess? Um, well, we got we landed on uh, an island called Viz, which is off the coast of Yugoslavia. Uh, Viz is another story, but we we landed there, and the guys couldn't get me out of the cockpit, so uh, they kept telling me I had to get out. And somehow or another, I got up and got on the Bombay out of the Bombay, and I fell, I stepped down onto the ground and. 
collapsed there, and the next thing I know, I was in an ambulance. You blacked out again. And I blacked out again. So just for a brief time, you're conscious enough. You're walking under your own power? I got out of there. I don't know how I did it. They, they were shocked that I did. Now, are you losing a lot of blood? I believe I lost a lot. Um, as, far as, I know, as far as I know, I think I had about seven transfusions. And these were all in a British hospital that was on that on island. On the Viz? On, on, the, on the island? That's all that was there. It was a couple of Quonset huts. And then they had American mechanics there who patched up airplanes enough to get them back to Italy to use again. So obviously your Beach 24 was still flyable. You were able to... As far as I know, I don't know what happened to it. I, as a matter of fact, they picked up the rest of the crew the next day and flew them back to Italy. And they went back into action? And then? they went back into action. And I, I, like I said, the captain um, was, had another problem later and was made a permanent co-pilot. So I, I in some ways, fault him for what happened to me, but I'm lucky, so I'm still here. Well, why did he leave the formation? I have no idea. He thought it was the wrong bomb group? Yeah, he thought we were with the wrong group. And I said, well, let's stay with them and go with them, see where they are. You know, he insisted on turning back. So. so this was continuous fire when you're flying through this one area and an aircraft? We, well, we were not in any, any danger. We were just up on top of the clouds. We had just broken out on top and hadn't gotten to our target yet. Mm. And he decided it was time he had to go back. So I, I've never... Afterward, I did see him after the war, or after uh, we got home, but I never questioned him. I just, it never made sense. And then I found out that he had been made a permanent co-pilot because he wrote me a letter and said he had screwed up again, and they they grounded him as a captain. How long are you in the hospital on the island? Um went down on the 17th of December, and I think I got into the American Hospital on New Year's Eve. So, a couple of weeks. Okay. And are you in and out of consciousness? Or no, are, I was You're conscious. okay. I was conscious, yeah. And at that point, people are telling you, this is what happened to yes, you. Yes, right. Yeah, the British took very good care of me. They, uh, of course, they opened me up and got the flak out, and... Uh, then we had, they had to do some other stuff to clean out my chest cavity, and every time they'd stick the needle in, well, they didn't have any anesthetic to spare, so they always handed me a bottle of scotch. And while they were working on it. So me, scotch, I, so wait, scotch was your anesthetic then? Scotch was my anesthetic, and I drink bourbon today. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of scotch did you have? I, I have no idea. You they didn't just acquire a taste They then. just handed me the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and they did, they did that on Christmas Day, an Andy Hardy movie they were showing. And they carried my cot into the other hut to watch the movie handed me a bottle of scotch, and uh, I was there. I, there was a Yugoslavian that was wounded, and with my mixture of Spanish and Italian, I'm trying to tell him what the movie's all about. So that's how I spent Christmas Day in 1944. Okay. So then you're, <clears throat> are you flown home then after that? I, no, I came home by boat. Okay. On a fast one, made it in seven days. Oh, not as uh, not the twenty-five days. Yeah, and then they send you to a hospital near your home, and I was sent to Truex Field in Madison, Wisconsin, 
for arrest and rehabilitation. How long were you there? Well, I got there in February, and I finally discharges of June. Was your family able to come and visit you? My during- mother and my sister came and visited me. Yeah. What was that like when your folk, when it your was, when your mom came in and sister? Well, I, what what had been what had gone on? My mother's birthday was January second, and being in the British hospital, the Americans did not know anything about me. They just knew that I hadn't come back. And by the time they sent a notice that I'd been wounded, it arrived at my mother's house on her birthday. And so they were a little bit shocked, you know, and, and uh, my mother tried to find out what had happened, but uh, they came and it was just very calm. So she knew you'd been wounded, but she didn't know where you were? Um, no, they, they they just send a letter or a note that, you know, you'd been wounded in over Austria and on such and such a day and you'd get information would be coming. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's all they told her. Oh, that must have been tough on her. It was. She tried to find everything out. <laughs> I, I got all upset with her because she wrote to everybody on the crew, to their parents to find out. Well, the guys weren't telling their folks what was going on. Mm-hmm. You didn't tell them, you know. So I was very upset with her for stirring the pot, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> well, a mother has a right to stir the pot. I, don't you believe, know? I believe so. <laughs> You're recuperating, and then uh, in May 45, mm-hmm. the war in Europe comes to an mm-hmm. end. How, how do you hear about that? I was still in, in, in Madison at the time. And we had heard that the president had died and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we heard it, it, it. News got out very fast. And uh, we, I heard it when I was there. Celebration? Not really. Like I say, we were hospitalized. And uh, although I was able to get home, I had to leave. They let me go home and so forth. But uh, not, not any real, real celebration. My mother had handwriting you had to decipher. My father had handwriting that was beautiful. It's usually the opposite. Yeah, and the night that they declared the war was over, I got a letter from my mother saying they were going into downtown Milwaukee to join the crowds and so forth. Where, when am I coming home and where am I going to school? That was on VE Day. My dad, on the back of the note my mother wrote, just said, come on home, all is forgiven. (laughs) (laughs) So my mother ruled the roost. Okay. When are you coming home and where are you going to school? All right. Uh, You stayed on in the military then. You did not... You did not leave. No, I stayed into the reserve until about 1952. So the Korean War starts. Right. Somebody gives Al Goodman a call and says, uh, what? Right. I said, I'm flying for a living. I'm married. I have a purple heart. I don't think I need another one. And I <laughs> resigned my commission. <laughs> Good decision, I guess. Yeah. Huh?
So you went on, uh, you, you continued to fly. How, yes. how many thousand hours do you have? You, you were a pilot for a number of companies, right? Yes, I ended up with 25,000 plus hours. Mm -hmm. 60 years of it. Wow. So, I'm, like I said, I'm extremely fortunate. The childhood dream came true. It did. And continued despite a couple of bumps right. on the road. Yeah, there were a few bumps, but other than that, I've, uh, I've, I have to admit, I miss it every day. <laughs> when was the last time you flew? That was 2004. Okay. Yeah. Did you keep your license up until then? Yes, I did. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you have the Air Medal, the Purple Heart. Oh, well, good conduct medal. You can't forget that one. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> when I was a cadet, when we were cadets, we all got it. So now... You do, at age 97, how often do you golf during the week? Three days when I can, if it's not raining. Weather permitting. Yep. And you have a group of guys you always go out with. Yes. There's uh, close, to, close to 40 of us. To what? Now, I have to admit, I'm not the best one. I'm, I can't hit it as far as the other guys, and uh, so I figure they put up with me. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm pretty good with a putter. <laughs> to what do you attribute your longevity? My mother died at 101. Uh, my dad died young. He was a heavy smoker. But again, I just think it's my faith and uh, belief that things are all for the good. The only way to be is positive, right? I think so. In 2010, you went on honor flight. Right. How did that begin? What, what were your expectations of what that was going to be like? I had no expectations, particularly because I had, in my flying for a corporation, I had been to Washington a number of times. I had not been to the memorial, but I had been around, and I, I knew pretty much of what there was there. So there was some anticipation just to see it with some other people where before I had seen it with my, my co-pilots and the jobs that I had. And I tried to explain a little bit to them because they were, of course, a lot younger. And so I had no real expectation, but I, I got there and I got to the World War II and I just went over and sat by myself for a while and just tried to take it all in the way it was supposed to be. Well, part of that, as best I understand it, the magic of the moment is you're with other veterans. Right. And you're able to share stories. And right. you connect with each other. Yeah. And that's, did, were you able was, to do that? Yes, I was. Um, I talked to a couple of fellows that were also pilots, and uh, we pretty much had similar stories but you know we ended up where you're from and so forth and got to know them personally were you know before like I say we we didn't get to know the people that well in our bomb group what was the homecoming like on honor flight for you <clears throat> when you flew Big back surprise. in the surprise yeah it was a great surprise I uh I made the mistake of talking to the captain of the airliner that flew us. I comparing notes, and all of a sudden I realized I could hear the music in the background, and I thought, you better catch up. 
And uh, then when I got in and saw all the people, it, it was quite a shock. I mean, it was fantastic. Hard to believe. We left in the morning. There were a few people that were there, but then when we got home, they were just all over. And I had no idea my family was going to be there. What was that like? It was a, a shock. Well, the whole thing was a shock coming home because we had mail call. And I opened up the envelope, and I saw all these letters. And I put them away. I couldn't read them. And then see the crowd, you know, it was. It you was, mean it was? You couldn't read them because it was an emotional moment. Yeah, very. I I couldn't read them for, I'd say two or three weeks. But you got a, you got I, around to it. I though. finally did. Yeah. Found out my kids liked me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice thing to find out, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, you've had a remarkable life, a remarkable military experience. A lot of good things have come out of that, right? Right. I'm very, like I said, I'm very fortunate. Well, I thank you for your service, Al. I appreciate it. Heck that. of a deal. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for joining me today, too. It was my pleasure. All right. We hope you found today's Honor Thank Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.